I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome. And today we are covering the five mistakes to avoid when selling your physical therapy practice. Today, we're going to be covering these five common mistakes that are often and can be overlooked. Now, we likely have heard, or you likely have heard, many different stories of how other owners have had bad experiences in selling some or all of their therapy practice. Typically, I believe, and we believe, that it can be tied back to an owner winging it, oftentimes not having experienced professionals in their corner, not having professional advice or support or guidance. We'll get into the five mistakes in a second. I'm Dave Kittle. This is The Dave Kittle Show, and I'm the owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. And we are currently speaking with owners and acquiring physical therapy practices in the New York and New Jersey area. So let's get into number one. Mistake number one, not knowing the true value of your practice. There's an old saying, it goes something like, if you don't know where you're going, any road will lead you there. I'm sure you've heard that saying before. And that same type of saying can be applied to a private practice owner that is looking to sell their practice. And oftentimes the practice owner is so busy with the day-to-day operations, and this may be you, and you may think of that about your your day-to-day, they might say things like that, they're, I'm too busy to spend time on my exit plan, my exit strategy, or I'm, I'm too busy to focus on that or, or worry about that. So many advisors, many consultants, and by the way, we are not advisors, we're not consultants, we're not brokers. We're looking to buy practices. We're putting out this content to help therapy practice owners like all of my colleagues and, and just like you. So Many advisors, many consultants will say that you need to be planning your exit from day one. However, you're already years into this therapy practice ownership by now. If you're listening, if you're watching this, you might be 5, 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years into owning a practice. It's not too late. You could start today. And that's why we're putting out this type of content. So again, like if you're listening to this, watching this, it means that now you're focusing on your exit or possible transition or possibly selling some or all of your practice. So if you're watching and listening, great, you're in the right place. So assuming you have a therapy practice, you wanna have a therapy practice that is buyer ready, meaning something that a buyer would want to step into. Okay, vital first step in selling some or all of your therapy practice is determining its value, its value, its economic value or its market rate or market value. What does that mean? It means looking at your financial statements, recasting your financial statements so that they adequately show the true profitability of your PTOT, your therapy practice, whatever type of therapy practice, outpatient physical therapy, for the most part, that these financial statements adequately show the true profitability of your private practice. And secondly, including your revenue, your profit projections in the next five years, Buyers are buying your current practice's financial performance. They typically, like us, we will typically focus on the trailing 12 months, the most recent 12 months. Buyers will also be looking at the last three years of tax returns and financial statements. The financial statements, meaning your income statement, your balance sheet, 
your profit and loss statement for each of the last three years, and but again, more of a focus on the most recent 12 months, those recent 12 months will really be telling of where your practice is financially. Therefore, buyers are not necessarily buying the future because your five-year projections are just that, they're projections. So at the most, buyers are buying rational expectations, not irrational expectations, like large, big jumps in revenue or big jumps in profit margin or something like that. So my advice, keep the projections realistic based off of your flow of patients and and your payer mix and all that type of stuff and, and your location, your staff and capacity and all that, right? So again, this is why it helps to have an experienced advisor or broker, an advisor such as Paul Martin with Martin Advisors or Chris Vandeford with Transition One or Mike Pikatowski with physicaltherapybrokers.com. Any of these, we don't get any commission or or affiliate or anything, no fee. We don't get any, any kickback if we mention their names. We're just mentioning some of the folks that are out there. They are experienced. And you want to have an advisor that's experienced in assessing these types of projections, looking at your financials. And many, if not all of these advisors will help you calculate and draft up a pro forma of financial statements that'll kind of show what happens if you open up a new clinic, if you close a clinic down, what happens if you hire two therapists, what happens when one therapist moves away, what happens with all that? And and how does it change the overall practice, the financials of the practice? So now it's possible that some of your deal structure could include contingent payments. Therefore, some of your future income could be dependent on the practice reaching the goals that you have outlined in your pro forma. So that's why it could be even more important. So as you can see, knowing your practice's value is based on knowing what your practice is truly earning, what it's truly earning, net profit. Uh, Next, once you have finalized your financials, you take a step back, you create a list of intangible assets. You want to take a list of the things that are not listed in the balance sheet, not listed on the income statement and the uh, profit and loss statement. Every therapy practice has intangible assets. We're going to go into those in a second. These are assets, like I said, do not show up on your financial statements, but they are critical to your ongoing success of your practice. And just a list. Here's a random sampling of some intangible assets of your therapy practice. So it could be something like a long rental lease for the next 10 or 15 years or longer, like a long lease that you're able to transfer to the new buyer, reassign to the new buyer. Of course, location, 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 right? Convenient parking, easy to find your office. It's not like in one of those like industrial parks where it's like behind several other buildings and patients and clients can't even like, there's no signage or they can't find your front door. They can't find your your number address. They have trouble finding it. And then if they have trouble finding your office, then they, they arrive late and then it throws your therapist schedule off and everything, you know, things and then issues happen. Other intangible assets, it could be specialized equipment. Even if that equipment is fully depreciated already, Also, the past patient list, the contact information of your previous patients and clients, ideally inside your electronic medical record. It's less valuable if it's like in a notebook somewhere, um, hopefully in in an EMR or in an Excel spreadsheet. Also, of course, valuable employees, key employees, insurance contracts, key relationships or partnerships with large employers nearby, specialized programs, whether it's pelvic floor program, neurological conditions. Parkinson's, MS, stroke, whatever it might be, pediatrics, also unique community marketing. So we interviewed Bob Babb on the podcast recently, and 
he and his practice at Physical Therapy and Wellness, they sold to Ivy Rehab, and it was in the episode. You can check it out. One of the unique community marketing components that Bob Babb did was they were doing a Broad Street rerun. They made this whole marketing effort and helped the community, and it was awareness for the practice. Because in Philly, there's the Broad Street Run, which is, I think, a half marathon or or a full marathon, maybe, maybe half or full. But in their area outside of Philly is Lansdale, where they were based out of. And Bob Babb, they created something called the Broad Street Rerun. Uh, and so they like did that from the ground up. So that was a unique component, unique community marketing that is an intangible asset. It doesn't show up on the balance sheet, does not show up in the financials. Also, what else? Referral sources, referral partners. So it could be you know a list of physician relationships. It could be coaches, teams, other businesses that refer patients and clients to you. Maybe there are other businesses that are larger. They refer their actual employees to you directly. It could be software tools or automation, um, email marketing component that you might have. Also, it could be organic SEO, how much unique website visitors come to your website every month. It could be, you know, your downloadables, your ebooks, your, your courses, whatever it might be things that are part of your content, part of your patient experience, whatever it might be. And, uh, this is just a partial list just to get you thinking about what makes you and your practice unique. And, so that you can think about what buyers will find attractive about your practice. So the more unique intangible assets that they see, the more likely they are to pay you what you're looking for, to pay you top dollar for your practice. So that was mistake number one. Mistake number two, not having an experienced person leading negotiations. It's either going to be an advisor or a broker or you. So as you can see from what we just mentioned, hopefully you realize that there is a lot of value in an advisor or a broker that can bring your practice to the market, bring your practice to sale. Again, we're not we're not brokers, we're not advisors. We are looking to acquire practices. So we're not trying to convince you and sell you on hiring us. We're not advising or brokering anything. We're actually on the other side of the table in a collaborative process looking to acquire practices. So like I said, we're acquiring practices in New York and uh, New Jersey area. So, however, sometimes it's been difficult for us to communicate and negotiate with a practice owner directly because they aren't experienced in the process sometimes, also leading to mistake number two, that they're not having this experienced person leading the negotiation. So sometimes things can drag on longer or take longer. Maybe you are very business savvy. So maybe you are, or maybe you will be leading your negotiations and that's fine. Actually, we have a practice right now under contract. Hopefully we can um, close this deal, this this partnership and tell you guys all about it. Um, and this practice owner is leading the negotiations themselves. So more on that, hopefully in the future, if we uh, complete it. But at the end of the day, many practice owners are not experienced and not necessarily qualified to begin or end this whole process of, of selling some or all of your therapy practice. And that's why we suggest that you have someone in your corner to support you, to guide you. It's not going to be us. We might buy you or invest in you, but we're just saying, hey, like this is what we see. You, you should definitely have someone in your corner. So it might be a business broker. It might be an advisor. Could actually be an investment banker if the practice is large enough. Like if a practice has 10, 15, 20 or more locations, then they're doing multiple millions in revenue and probably multiples of millions of EBITDA or adjusted EBITDA. So in those sizes, there might be an investment banker that's kind of conducting the negotiations. Ultimately, there's a big and important factor here that we must address. This transaction will likely be the largest transaction of your life. Therefore, wouldn't it make sense to have an experienced advisor helping you? That's their main job. That's all they do. So 
you've been a therapist and a private practice owner, uh, but likely you don't have a history in valuing service-based businesses and you may not have a long history of negotiating deals like this. So anyway, here's the next thing to consider. From our experience, the process is faster or more efficient when there's a an advisor involved. They're leading things. They're kind of going to take you by the hand and kind of walk you through everything. And they'll interact with the potential buyers for the most part. When there's no advisor involved, it usually takes the owner more time to kind of learn the process and kind of get up to speed. And when I say the process, I mean everything from getting the mutual NDA, the non-disclosure agreement signed, to sending your practice financial documents to the potential buyer and all of that. So of course, you want to know like, hey, is this potential buyer, are they the right fit? You know, then it would be discussing the timeline in the next couple of months, in the next six to nine months. Like, when are you looking to actually sell some or all of your practice? Is it something like you're looking to do like a year from now, or is it something you're actually like looking to do in the next three months? So there's a difference there in terms of timeline. Plus, here's an added benefit. If you have this trusted advisor in your corner, then they help you organize all of these, the tax returns, the financial statements, they kind of put it all together in a nice professional packet, typically called an information memorandum, a confidential information memorandum. Some brokers or advisors will call it an offering memorandum, an OM. Some brokers and, and advisors call it a SIM, a CIM, the confidential information memorandum. Pretty much the same thing either way. To make it easy for potential buyers to, like us, they make it easy for us so that we can assess and analyze the practice in an efficient manner. So when a broker or advisor does this, they take away a lot of the stress and overwhelm that owners would experience if they were to kind of do this all on their own. All right, that was mistake number two. Mistake number three, not having your files and documents in order. Have you ever heard, you never get a second chance to make a first impression? I'm sure you've heard that saying before. Here's what I mean by that. When a seller like you, a potential seller, and us, a potential buyer, when we first connect, we're going to talk about high-level generalities. Like I said, the next step is, hey, let's get a mutual non-disclosure agreement signed. Let's get an NDA signed. We'll send one. Or if you have one from your legal counsel or, or your lawyer, you could send it. We'll sign it. Either way, it's like, hey, we're going to sign something. We're going to keep things private and confidential. Either way, it's been looked at by our lawyers that were your lawyer has drafted it and and revised it or added any clauses or addendums or anything like that to it. Then it's either signed, like I said, by the owner or the, the potential buyer. And in this case, if you have a broker or advisor, they will handle it. It depends if it's one individual or if it's like a firm and they do it over email. In that case, it's like kind of out of your hands. Like you don't even have to worry about it. So that way, you know, you're also kind of vetting like the seriousness of the potential buyers, and it doesn't take away from your day-to-day operations. So now if you don't have a broker advisor, then then you'll be sending these files, the, the tax returns, the uh, last three years of balance sheet, income statement, profit and loss statement, all of those, you'd have to send them. You'd have to get them from your accountant or your bookkeeper or procure them yourself. You'd have to send those to the potential buyer, right? So then it takes your effort and your time outside of whatever you're doing. Like, are you still treating patients or maybe you're just managing the office and and the practice or the multiple offices? So it really just depends on your situation. So if it takes you, let's just say if you're a smaller practice and you don't have a broker or advisor, if it takes you a week to sign or e-sign the NDA, the buyers might not think you're all that serious. At the same time, if you have a broker or advisor, like I said, they're firm, they will handle this for you. And they will ask the potential buyers to sign and return the NDA. 
Now, once this, like I said, once the NDA is signed, the potential buyers will typically ask to see the last three years of IRS tax returns, as well as comparing that to the last three years of the income statements, the balance sheets, and the profit and loss. And now, mistake number three, like I said, is not having these foundational documents ready. So if it takes you, the practice owner, one or two weeks to simply email these to us or email these to the potential buyer that you're speaking with, these potential buyers will either not take you seriously or they may not think that you're all that organized. And the reason why this is mistake number three is because if you were not able to prepare and send over these standard document requests for this process to get this process going, are you really serious about selling some or all of your practice? You got to think about that for sure. But let's just say you are really serious about doing this. Then, you know, if it takes you one or two weeks to send these files to the potential buyer, then the, these potential buyers might not think you're all that organized. And, and now let me ask you this. So if a potential buyer does not think you're organized, what will they think about your practice? Immediately in the buyer's mind, do you think this would make them think more highly of you or your practice? Or do you think that they might start to devalue your practice or think that, you know, not everything is tightly in line and organized in your practice? So now let's say you send the potential buyers these files in a timely manner. But if you're, you know, your bookkeeping or your statements or your files are spotty or worse, full of errors, you know, chances are you will lose every buyer that approaches you, or you're going to have buyers think that they're going to just offer you like low ball offers. If you're working with a, a broker or advisor, like I said, they're going to help you prepare all of this. They're going to help you prepare the, the comprehensive offering memorandum, that packet that's containing the financials and the strong points of your practice. Specifically, it should include a detailed description of your practice, focusing on all those intangibles that we talked about, all those things that make you unique, the full history of your practice, especially any significant events in the last five years. Again, it's a detailed look at your organization, focusing on things like your key employees and all the things that we mentioned, what your key employees do and why they do the things that they do to make your practice successful. Inside this as well is going to be a breakdown of your payer mix. It's going to be a breakdown of your referral sources, like how much, what percentage of your patients come from physician referrals, what percentage come from your you know word of mouth or past patient list or online like Google or Facebook or elsewhere. It'll also have a comprehensive overview of where the practice is heading in the next five years. And uh, again, if you don't have that, that's why, again, a broker or advisor will kind of help you procure this because the practice owner that we're speaking with right now doesn't have a lot of these you know, five-year projections for us because again, this individual is just doing the negotiations of price and terms, negotiating all of this on, on their own behalf themselves. So some of these things we're seeing like, lacking when someone doesn't have an advisor or broker. And then if someone does have an advisor or broker, there's like a lot of this is kind of just prepared for us, sent, and we have a lot of that in a much more efficient manner. So it makes it easier for us to kind of get to a decision of like, do we want to pursue this potential transaction and buy some or all of this practice or not? And, and we can kind of get to that decision faster. So what else is in this uh, confidential information memorandum? Like I said, the uh, comprehensive overview of where the practice is heading in the next five years and more importantly, what it will take to get there. So capital, dollars, people, what type of team members do you need to hire if you're looking to grow, et cetera. Finally, if you want to move things along faster, there should be an asking price in this confidential information memorandum as well. A lot of the brokers and advisors will have that. And that was mistake number three. Mistake number four, selling to just any buyer. So take time to think about it. What's most important to you? 
when you're selling or thinking about selling some or all of your practice? What's most important to you in a potential exit and a potential transition out of your practice? Now, of course, as a therapy practice owner myself, of course, the dollar amount for you is going to be pretty important. It's going to be most, it's going to be really important to, to pretty much most sellers. But also we're speaking with private practice owners who also want to know, you know, what's going to happen to my people? That's what they said. Hey, what's going to happen to my people? What's going to happen to this therapist that's with me for 18 years? What's going to happen in most part for us? Like, hey, we want to keep those therapists. We want to keep those team members because we want the practice to be stable. We want them to continue to be serving patients and serving the community. So some buyers are okay with selling to a large corporate, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. Other buyers tell us that they would rather transition the practice over to either their staff members or they'd rather sell to a group like us, like a therapist, a PT, a PT owner group, rather than sell to a corporate. So most buyers will want you, most buyers will want you guys, you guys to stick around for some amount of time. It really just depends on the health and the stability of your practice, and it depends on those buyers. They want you to stick around to help with the transition and ensure that the integration is smooth with your staff. That was one thing that Bob Babb just mentioned recently on the last couple episodes when I interviewed him. And he sold 11 of his locations to Ivy Rehab. And he got 100% cash to close. He didn't say the dollar amount, but he got 100% cash to close. And then, so that was like one agreement. And then the second agreement was an employment agreement. Basically, like he was going to continue to treat patients and he would be paid X amount per hour or just salary or whatever to treat patients. So he said that there was no fixed timeline that he needed to be kind of locked in by Ivy Rehab. Usually though, most are going to want the practice owner to stick stick on and stay on board for about six to 12 months after the date of the close. And for us, I mean, it, it certainly helps de-risk to de-risk the acquisition, the transition after the close. It, it certainly will help any any practice and any buyer get more confident about the situation. If the owner, if you are open to sticking around for six to 12 months, if you're looking to get out right at the close, then your practice better be running completely without you. And that goes back to Jamie Schreier's episode when I interviewed him here on the podcast. Because when he sold his two locations, he was not in the day-to-day at all. He was not in the medical record at all as a physical therapist. So he was not treating patients. He was doing some weekly or monthly meetings, but he had already built a core team, like an executive team around him. And one of his negotiating points was he wanted to sell and he did so. And he got 100% cash to close. That was what he wanted. And then also he said, I'm not sticking around at all. So I want this dollar amount and I'm not sticking around at all. So you'd have to go listen to his episode. He tells the exact dollar amount of how much he sold for, which is pretty cool. And you could hear that how confident he was about getting out and not having to do any of this integration or steadying the ship after the close. Now, it was because his practice already operated well without him. Anyway, so if you do so, if you stick around for 6 to 12 months after the close, which is what most buyers will want of you, it also shows the staff that you're still there. You're kind of still in the mix. You're putting your best foot forward and leading this transition. And you know what this does? It, It helps your staff remain calm and confident in your decision on who you sold to. And they'll certainly, most of the time, like that. They'll prefer that. I know Bob Bad mentioned that, that he believed and he felt that that was really important. Like his, he said that his situation at his practice was, I think he said it was amplified. His responsibility and his leadership is what he said, was amplified in the six to 12 months after the close. 
meaning he was still there. He cared so much about the team and the practice, and he wanted to make the transition very, very smooth as possible. So he stuck around for two years treating patients. And then most recently, he is uh, stepping out of patient care and will no longer be doing the day-to-day involvement of going to the office every day. But he did for two years, and maybe you don't have to do the full two years, but most buyers will really want you to do at least three months. And the average is probably six to 12 months. And then also, if you're younger, if you're in your 40s or 50s, then in some cases, some buyers might need you or want you to stay on. Also depends on the strength of your practice, but they may want you to stay on for like multiple years. It really depends on your situation, how much of the practice is revolving around you versus the practice revolving around your staff and your team. Now, speaking about staff, some of your staff members may have already, they may already have preconceived notions about the new owners or or any new owner. So some things to consider, some things to think about. What does your staff think about the current regional or national corporate buyers out there? Even if you're not going to ask them directly, what do you think they would say? What do you think they would say, you know, if you were going to sell to whatever corporate? And I have nothing against corporates. I mean, I I know many of the CEOs and I worked for one at one point and, you know, it's all good. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But how do you think your team will react when you tell them the news about your decision and which buyer will that come into effect? And do you think that they'll, you know, have an issue one way or the other? Or maybe in some cases, some folks might believe that, you know, if some therapist is going to get mad that you're selling and you're exiting and you're transitioning out, they might get upset regardless because they're just afraid of change and, you know, a shift in like their normal life and their their normal job. Even though if their job, their hours, their pay, if everything else stays the same, the office stays the same, maybe Maybe the electronic medical record changes in six to 12 months. Maybe the sign on the door, maybe the brand name changes in six to 12 months. In some cases, it may not. So anyway, that's for you to figure out. This is why selecting the right buyer has to include you not just thinking about yourself, but and not just thinking about the dollar amount, but you kind of have to step back and think about the whole situation. And you should also ask prospective buyers, what will they do with your staff? You should ask them, hey, what will you do with my team members? Will you get rid of some roles? Will you get rid of you know human resources? I mean, sometimes if there's some central call center, there's still going to be a front desk person needed, but maybe less of the the front desk team. It depends on the buyer. It depends on if they already have things centralized and if they already have things like like they might get rid of redundant roles that the corporation that the corporate already has in place. So they might already have regional people. They might already have senior VPs or you know regional individuals. So it really just depends. Mistake number five, that was mistake number four. Mistake number five, not structuring a fair deal or a realistic deal for both sides. So not all brokers and advisors are the same. Almost all brokers and advisors are paid a percentage of the purchase price. Therefore, of course, they are incentivized to possibly overestimate or inflate the value of your practice. That's just my opinion. It's kind of like a realtor. Like, of course, if a realtor is gonna list your house they either want to list it really low just so that they can move on and get the commission and, and move on, or they want to list it at a really high dollar amount because then they'll get a higher commission, right? So it just depends on all these factors in the marketplace. Plus, they know that most buyers will negotiate the initial asking price. So we went back talking about the initial asking price, like that's in your confidential information memorandum, the thing that your advisor, your broker might have already discussed with you, and, and you guys agree on that. So Brokers will, in my opinion, some brokers and advisors, many of them will uh, typically overinflate the asking price 
They want to leave room for the back and forth negotiations with buyers like us. And it helps you to understand also at the same time, the common multiples of how physical therapy practices are valued in the United States. This is something that your broker and advisor will work with you on. Really quick, we'll make this brief that physical therapy practices in the US are valued at a multiple of EBITDA. So EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. We have several other interviews and episodes here on the Dave Kittle Show covering EBITDA and um, and owners telling us you know, what Michael Gorman was interviewed on the show. He sold his seven locations, St. Louis Physical Therapy, to a regional or national buyer, and that was at 7x EBITDA. Some owners on the podcast that I've interviewed, they've disclosed what EBITDA multiple that they've sold for, so you can certainly check those out. And you can ask your broker advisor to review with you EBITDA and, and kind of teach you some of the financials. But th- this financial number and this, this financial conversation is how practices are valued. So speak to your advisor and broker about EBITDA because this is how we're going to kind of agree on a ballpark number of adjusted EBITDA after addbacks. There's so many other podcasts. I just interviewed Dr. Todd Russell, a, a dentist that's buying dental offices in Ohio. Empire Dental Arts. And we were talking about addbacks and, and adjusted EBITDA. So you can go and check that episode out if you'd like for more information on that. Basically, EBITDA multiples are based on net earnings. EBITDA multiples are based off of your profit at the end of the year. So a good rule of thumb, if your profit is $300,000 or less in profits, then you're typically in the ballpark of a 3x multiplier or a 3x multiple of EBITDA. So whatever your EBITDA is, if your EBITDA is 300000 per year, so that's net profit, maybe you're doing a million or 1.2 or 1.5 million in revenue. If your net profit at the end of the year is 300 $300,000, you're kind of in the ballpark of three times that number. Once again, it might be an adjusted EBITDA. So maybe your adjusted EBITDA is you know 400000 and times three, then you're at $1.2 million for an asking price. If you are in the ballpark of $500,000 to $800,000 in net profit, then rough math, rough range, you're about five to six times EBITDA. That's the EBITDA multiple, about five or six times EBITDA in that range. If you are doing over a million dollars in profit per year, then you, your advisor, your broker, et cetera, could probably negotiate for an 8x EBITDA multiple. And then, of course, if you're larger scale, 3 million to 5 million in profits, that's where you're kind of in the 10 times the 10x multiple of EBITDA in that range. So if you have a million dollar revenue practice with $250,000, $250,000 in net profits, then you're, you're kind of, you're basically on the borderline of three times multiple of EBITDA. So some brokers would want to inflate that. Like I said, inflate that based off of your adbacks and which adbacks are legit or not or et cetera, and which ones had to do with the business and didn't, you come up with that adjusted EBITDA as well over 300,000. Or like I said, trying to get that number, your broker, your advisor will be advocating to uh, say that that adjusted EBITDA number is $400,000 or more so that you could try to basically get that 4X EBITDA multiple instead of a 3X EBITDA. Does that make sense? So if you found this valuable, that, that was the five mistakes. The five common mistakes, excuse me, to avoid when selling your physical therapy practice. So if you found this valuable, what I want you to do is I want you to share it with one of your physical therapy practice or PTOT speech, healthcare practice owner, business owner, private practice director or owner or partner. 
send it to them. Send them a link from the show, the either the Apple iTunes, the YouTube, or the Spotify. That's where you can find these episodes. And if you do that, then you're probably interested in subscribing. We have nothing to sell you. There's no pitch. Uh, subscribe and check it out on YouTube, Apple iTunes, and Spotify. If you subscribe, you'll get notified when new episodes are published. Again, this is Dave Kittle, physical therapist, and I'm the practice owner at Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group where we're acquiring practices in the New York and New Jersey area. So if you want to reach out to me, you can connect with me on LinkedIn or you can shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. Feel free to connect there at any time. And that's it for now. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.